You're listening to PZ's Podcast, a guided tour of ancient truths and absurd tales for the modern pilgrim. PZ is space cruising at low altitudes most days through a galaxy of phantom planets of the mind, ever in search of an answer to his wound. Is he a space Parsifal bleeding under his suit but hopeful for journey's end? Buckle up and join him now as he blasts by Mars and Venus, rounding Luna in sure and certain hope of our childhood's end. You can reach PZ while he is on this quest at pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's PZ. podcast about reality and how reality catches up with us. Now, it always catches up with everybody, but different kinds of egos accommodate themselves or attempt to reach kind of rapprochement, even at the very um, greatest moment of crisis, that sometimes prevent you from taking advantage of the opportunity of the crisis or of the incursion of reality. But I want to talk a little bit today about a film, which you might call again a kind of sermon text, as so often these become, because these really are um, kind of short meditative talks on texts. And um, the movie is called Billy Liar, and it was made in 1963 and starred Tommy Courtney and Julie Christie, and it was directed by John Schlesinger, and it was based on a play by two Englishmen, actually one Englishman named Waterhouse, and then he brought his um, um, colleague in Hall to create a genuine masterpiece about the incursion of reality, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but again, I'm really talking about you and me, and the kind of crisis that comes when reality, and finally in the form of the Grim Reaper... (laughs) hits, and it is just so longingly important that you be able to kind of take advantage of the destruction of life by means of reality, or the destruction of constructs by means of reality, which you probably won't, because people don't want to do it, and they find all sorts of ways not to do it, and we could talk a lot about AA, which makes a tremendous headway in this um, area, but I want to talk about it as symbolically expressed in a most really brilliant and patient work of art, this little movie called Billy Liar. Now, the, uh, you don't have to have seen it, but by the way, you can see it. It was released in Criterion, but is now out of print, and you can get a VHS copy, but that's not the point. If you go to YouTube, and listen, people who don't like YouTube, you can see the whole thing. The whole thing is 98 minutes, and it's fairly recently been put up. So if you just look up Billy Liar, Peren, 1963, and a YouTube, you'll kick up immediately uh, the Criterion edition of the thing, Janus Films, or actually Rialto Films in this case, and you can watch the whole thing from beginning to end. And if you've got one of these uh, converted televisions, converted televisions, which we ourselves, by the grace of a brother 
in law happen to now have, <clears throat> but many do, you can see it as if it's a DVD, the whole thing without any breaks whatsoever. Entirely uh, the same experience as putting a DVD in your television. It's amazing. But don't worry about that. See it. Because this particular film depicts Bradford, let's call it, a town in uh, northern uh, England, in Yorkshire, where all the buildings are coming down. The uh, great pains are made by the filmmakers, who are really very good, to display the complete decay. Uh, no, that's not the right word. The destruction of the old city of Bradford or whatever, the Barnsley or whatever, I think it is Bradford, to urban renewal in the early 60s. So all the old Victorian gas flats or non-gas flats, hot water, cold water flats, all of the Victorian uh, housing and many of the Victorian buildings are being knocked down and Lovingly, if that's the right word, you see scenes of the uh, cranes and hammers destroying right from the very opening in the credits in a very funny manner. You see everybody's house is being destroyed. Now, the symbol there, it's not about the change of times. Of course, there's an element of that. There's one little speech where two people talk about, you know, everything's changing. Life is changing. We have to keep up. But uh, the man who most talks about keeping up has a plastic see-through coffin in his hands as he speaks. The play slash movie is laden with symbols, but they're really actually very good. It's really about death and life and reality. And in this particular um, urban landscape, as everything is coming down from the wrecking ball, literally in front of you. And that was true of England. It's true where I live, actually, but in a slightly different way. It's true of many, many places where the community uh, succumbs to the all sorts of economic requirements to change, and everything is blown up. What once was is not. But in this, it's a very dramatic parable of a person. It's not a um, sociological or uh, ideological parable at all, although that is referred to in one speech slash one and a half speeches. The overwhelming picture here is of a young man who's only 19 who is having an absolute nervous breakdown. It's really about a young man who's having a nervous breakdown. This man, played by Billy Courtney, is Tommy Courtney, his name is Billy Fisher in the uh, in the thing, is losing everything. His modus operandi entirely in life is to live in a fantasy world where he lives in a sort of special, sort of like the Bronte sisters did with their brother Branwell. He lives in a special little kingdom called Ambrosia. So terrible is his life that he um, lives in his head in this completely... um, um, land of ideality and struggle which is directly related to the struggles of his life and you see in rather spectacular form armies marching battles won newsreels done great victory marches great rallies parades you see um, very powerfully done the uh, corollary of what's happening in his actual life expressed in this kind of romanticized uh, battlefield uh, slash field of victory called ambrosia and at first you say, oh, my gosh, this is an old theme. We've seen it all before. Walter Mitty, we live in our heads, and, you know, we have to be brutally yanked back. But what's actually happening, and I feel it's told extremely carefully and very thoughtfully, is the breakdown of a young man. He is uh, engaged to two women at the same time. His relationships with the opposite sex are very heartfelt. He's a very <clears throat> sexually oriented, normal 19-year-old boy, but he has completely gotten himself into hot water with two different women, both of whom are awful. He is losing his job. He has a horrible job. He hates an undertaker's office, and that's another big symbol of death. He even courts a very prudish and ridiculous sort of middle-class 
silly girl that he is uh, supposedly engaged to, he courts her in a uh, in a cemetery. Now that is actually very laden with true pictures. He's a dead man, this 19-year-old, and all his life is falling apart. He's losing his job. He lies about everything. He makes up fictional accounts of everything. He is telling stories all the time, and he has this idea that he will go to London and get a job with a comedian. He doesn't have the job. It's all made up in his mind, and there's a very awkward and uncomfortable scene where he sees that he doesn't have a prayer, as it were, of a job of the kind he wants, and he's condemned. So he has no future professionally. His life is coming down around him in terms of the buildings that are falling down all over that are being knocked down all over. And his relationships with his women friends are dramatically falling apart. Uh, he's potentially under the possibility of criminal prosecution for having stolen the postage money that was to be used for sending out calendars advertising the undertaker's business where he is working as a kind of lackey in a, in a near Dickensian situation. So he's in a very tight spot with the law. I mean, he could be put away for six months without question for what he has actually done. His women falling apart. He has a terrible, ranting, angry, impossible, totally unsympathetic, utterly frustrated, although you have a little sympathy for the father father because his father is the everything his father says is the absolute worst thing he could possibly say and he's got a very protective and very loyal but also very demanding and nagging mother who's very wonderful and very deep and there's a scene in, in the hospital later on in the movie with Mona Washburn that is really for the ages she becomes a very very deep and lovely um powerfully emotional human being. So these are all normal people, but this poor fella is on every side. He has a grandmother he can't stand who's always hectoring. He has a terrible home life, no job, terrible relationships with women, which are really skyrocketing. And uh, he has no future, and he lies about everything. Well, uh, the metaphor is of uh, the life is being absolutely demolished all around him, and there's a wonderful scene in the Moors where he goes up and he meets his boss's very ancient partner, sort of the Jacob Marley of the firm. Real. This is in reality. He snapped back into reality, and the man is really quite impressive and sees through this young Billy Fisher at age 19, this 75-year-old man, sees through the young man completely and explains to that, and he, he's sort of being uh, taken the mickey out of. He's being mocked quietly through a kind of put-on um, Yorkshire rural, supposed accent that the young man adopts in sort of condescending to this old uh, geezer who is his putative boss and he's uh, he's really very wicked actually to the man and the man calls him on it the man realizes it <clears throat> and dramatically calls him on it and the young boy is really put in his place but with love the old man is kind of a divine figure who comes out of the hills to uh, like the divine figure of the god the father and on the road remember near the end of on the road neil and jack met god on the road both uh, near colorado and then one more time actually in a car well god sort of appears and he says to the boy he says whatever you do you're a young man you got a long way to go but you need help you can't do it on your own. Well, into this very powerful movie walks Julie Christie. And you'll notice if you look carefully that she doesn't really come into the movie in a serious or real way till almost the last quarter of the film. She makes a brief appearance 
but her first serious uh, uh, expression and appearance, and it's very serious indeed, is in the last quarter of the movie. But if you look carefully, you'll see her in Ambrosia because he says at one point, you know, I've been dreaming about you. I've been dreaming that you and I would actually have a, have a life in our fantasy world. We'd close this green baize door and we'd go into our fantasy world where we could live as we wished. And if you look carefully, you'll see Julie Christie in his dream long before he confides in her so powerfully. Well, she's not the deus ex machina. She's a completely self-realized individual. There are great pains to show that she cares for nobody, but she's actually full of love. She is, they all say today she's sexually forward and she's you know, a free woman. Yes, you could say that, and it's really quite wonderful that Billy Fisher should have drawn the attention of her, and what you realize is that they've known each other for a long time. You don't realize that till very near the end, that this sort of odd deus ex machina beautiful girl is in fact someone he's known for a very long time, and who knows all about him, and sees right through him, and yet really loves him. <laughs> and so she... Uh, she sees through him and yet really loves him. And uh, uh, she's not really a deus ex machina because she presents uh, Machina. She presents him uh, with a wonderful possibility. Uh, the scene uh, after they leave the uh, dance hall has got to be one of the most precious scenes in, in, in the cinema of that period in which he really talks to her. And he talks to her philosophically and spiritually and existentially, not about you know uh, the world changing. He talks about his own suffering with incredible care candor. And she talks about herself with incredible candor. And uh, she talks about a new beginning, but in non-flaky ways. And she makes it very clear that not only would she marry him if he asked. I mean, here he's, she's this beautiful girl. And he's this, um, you know, has a bit of a history with men, as she very honestly says. And he is this very, very troubled, almost not schizophrenic, but he's, he's really, really cowed by life into a complete fantasy land. He, uh, she also offers to sleep with him in the most obvious, natural, normal, beautiful way. And, of course, this gives him everything he needs and requires. And she says, look, I'll go with you. I'll get out of, I'll get out of here, but I'll go with you. Remembering what the old man said on the top of the moor, uh, she says, I'll, uh, I can help you. I'll go with you. Let's go together and get away from your, our lives here or your life here. And what happens at the end of the movie, I won't tell you. It's a famous and somewhat, to many people's way of looking, a bittersweet ending, uh, probably more in the bitter side. It doesn't bother me because it's actually what would happen um, with so many people, but not all. But what is so powerful about this film is that it shows you about reality. And let me just talk about you and reality for a minute. I had thought for many years that the core problem of human existence was a problem of morality. <clears throat> I would have always subordinated the uh, reality problem that I knew we have because I'd seen it in myself and I'd seen it in many others, deluded, mentally ill people, uh, neurotic and not so neurotic. Everyone has a problem about what they're seeing and what they're seeing is only often very a part, partial truth of what is actually there. And I guess I knew that both from myself and from others quite soon and all sorts of others. Uh, but I always uh, thought that the moral problem, the question of guilt and culpability – responsibility um, was second to the problem of being. I no longer believe that. I do believe there's a moral problem. But the let us say this. It's in the same way that word and sacrament are in historic centrist Anglican theology sort of um, seen as uh, two parts of a full fullness. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I think about that now. But I will say that 
reality problems and culpability problems are evenly distri- are, are, are 50-50. Possibly, I, perhaps I would put the weight, almost the plurality on the reality because we just don't see. And uh, Billy's world that is coming down as these great symbols, which are not cultural, historical, ideological symbols of urban renewal, although you could see them as that, and they are there, but they're really symbols of a personality being deconstructed. And you can have all the right um, – you can have a tremendous amount of um, moorings uh, – based upon forgiveness of sin, which I really profoundly believe is one of the great, great gifts of the Christian faith that no other religion in quite the same way has ever been able to convey. And I'd, I'd say that. I'd, I'd, I'd pump for that. But uh, you can have all that and yet still have a tremendous problem of seeing, and reality can still come to you, as it did to me, like a, a wrecking ball. And then you have to say, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I also had a problem of seeing. Many, many things that I saw were partial. Many things that were around me I didn't see, and there I'm speaking personally. A great many uh, aspects of what I was presented with I only saw partially because I saw it through my, only through my own eyes. And what people tend to do is when they're confronted with rude reality, they, they, cr- they crumble. They're, they're just, they just can't handle it. They completely collapse in the face of negativity. And at the same time, uh, if they actually face it, and that there's a, that's called fighting. Uh, you, you, you fight the reality or you flee it, fight or flight. You fight it, and you never can win. You, you can try to win. You can work the political process forever. But believe me, you'll normally lose hope because we're not meant to win. Um, you can't win against reality. Who in the world would ever think you could? But we all think we can. Um, Rowan Williams said a very interesting thing in an interview that he gave in connection with his announcement that he is um, leaving office as the Archbishop of Canterbury in December, I think, of this year. And he said, I was faced with a couple of uh, problems or controversies that will not go away. He said, I thought they would. I mean, I thought that with a tremendous amount of love and care and work and bringing people together and quiet and gentleness and non-reactive behavior, which is actually what he brought to the table, as we say, that these problems might actually potentially be solved, but they haven't been solved. We said these problems won't go away. Now, what I want to say is that is that these problems cannot be solved. And that is to say, not any particular issue, but problems that are framed in terms of winners and losers, uh, problems that are framed in terms of any kind of either or result inevitably cannot be solved uh, because they tie into primeval human unsolvable dualisms that are simply not meant to be solved. You cannot solve a problem by controlling it or having victory over it or winning it. You cannot do it. Uh, You try it. There are some problems which can respond well for a time over that, but the big problems in life cannot be dealt with in terms of any kind of ultimate attempt to win anything. And so you really do best to admit defeat not before the issue itself, but before the possibility of winning anything. And this is where the East has a tremendous amount to teach us in the West. No problem of this kind can be won by some kind of uh, victorious um, outcome because, A, there always are losers, and, B, it's a hollow victory because it's not that – what did the – the sixth patriarch say, it's not that the question can't be answered. Is that you're always any time you ask a question, you're asking the wrong, you're doing the wrong thing. Stop asking the question. Don't try to spend all your time answering a question. In this case, a a question of 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 battle, a question of you or me, uh, a question of political will and force. That's called force, and it's not strength, as a friend of mine often says. So uh, there are some problems.
problems that cannot be solved, and they cannot be solved by any kind of hierarchy. They cannot be solved by an Archbishop of Canterbury. So when he said the problems wouldn't go away, what he really should have said, and I'm very grateful to be out of them now, because in a way, in the sphere of solving, I cannot win. I have to really stop solving. I have to recognize that it cannot be solved because it's not meant to be solved. Not the issue itself, ideologically, but the notion that there could be a solution that would uh, involve a rectification. Because, in fact, uh, there is a level of loss, suffering, and ultimately, um, and obviously, transience, and ultimately, unreality at the heart of all human attempts to determine anything. What did he say? There is nothing whatever to be attained. And you can't be the Archbishop of Canterbury and believe that. You really would do better to become the seventh patriarch or the 23rd patriarch, or in this case, the master of Magdalen College in Cambridge. I think he's doing just the right thing. Get thee to a nunnery. I would say that that's the story of my life. But what I'm trying to say is that um, the uh, great uh, significance of um, this uh, wonderful uh, truth of life shown in this movie is that the problem really is looking at reality as it is and not trying to suss it, to use the English phrase, or find a way through it, but simply let it be and detach from it. Now that sounds a little bit, you know what I'm talking about, but that's all right. She says, Julie Christie says something that the playwright puts with screenwriter puts puts in her mouth with extraordinary penetration. She says, I really like to be invisible. She said, I don't really like to become part of anything. She says to him, and she means it. She says it in a very, you're meant to say, oh my gosh, what an interesting thing. This woman who is both detached and able to care. She cares for Billy, but she doesn't care because when she doesn't get him, she's also able to live. But she does want him. Want him wonderfully. And the power of to care and not care is it uh, it assumes that you look at reality without any kind of need to twist it into anything that it's not. You see Billy Fisher in this poor world that he lives in in Yorkshire uh, cannot lick the life that he has. He's, he's, he's defeated. He's defeated by his women. He's defeated by his mother. He's defeated by death. That comes into it. He's defeated by his father. He's defeated by his professional colleagues. He's defeated by his friends. He's defeated by his entire life. And when she says, I, I really would like to be invisible, and then I don't have to become part of anything. And yet, of course, she's the only person in the whole place who has the courage and the revelation and the inspiration, I should say, to actually do something with her life. She's the only person in the entire setup of Billy Liar who's able to actually do anything and to encourage poor Billy to do something. So you see the fruit of the Spirit. She cares and she doesn't care. She's not, uh, she's not averse like Billy, who's averse so profoundly to his life that he goes into, a, when he thinks happen badly, he sees in his mind uh, the rape of ambrosia. He sees in his mind some newsreel of his fictional kingdom, and yet he doesn't try to fix it because every attempt he makes to fix his life falls apart completely. Now that's you and me, and I want to say this. Reality generally catches up with people. Um, what happens is they don't accept it or they, they, they go into another world or they go into another place in themselves and they refuse to accept it and they get stuck. Ultimately, they become extremely angry. I told you about Philip Wiley's very striking character in his last novel called The End of the Dream. And Wiley was not detached. But he does show a person he shows very interestingly a doctrinaire quote liberal on ecological issues he portrays a very very striking and wonderful ivy league uh, marvelous man who's a doctrinaire liberal on green issues and uh, 
actually believes that if you shout enough to the world about the uh, the green problem, the ecological problem, they will change, and you can uh, find a middle way through it and save the earth. And the earth is not saved. The earth is not only not saved, but he is confronted both in words and in deed by the fact that that everything he thought he could accomplish as a as a very strong ecologist and ecological thinker in 1972, he fails. He completely fails, and then someone sort of rubs his nose in it and shows him the folly of his actual this worldly belief that he could actually do something with his life and his work and his reaction is classic he wants to commit suicide he just sits he just cries he he completely loses it and he just sits in a corner and puts his thumb in his mouth as it were and wants to commit suicide now what happens with people who try to deal with even with the best of intentions and motives what we face before us whether they're on the left or the right or the middle but usually they're on the left or the right ideologically and they're filled with some kind of rage which translates itself to some kind of ideological attachment again on the right or the left it's equidistant and they go at it and they're defeated and they're so angry that they become they've almost become murderous they become they either hate the people they're attacking or don't like or think of the source of their problems or they become so disappointed as to be incredibly uh, irascible what did cousin say at the end he found himself becoming an irascible old man sonniga alte mensch you know alte man sonniga he uh, he sees himself as uh, he's shocked at his own conservative anger and he writes about it in williamstown when someone comes to the door with a liberal cause in 19 19- 59 or something like that. Well, what I'm trying to get at, uh, 61 actually, is the, um, you either become that, or if you pull a Billy Liar, you just you just go into another world. I mean, with me, it would be movies and rock and roll and and all sorts of things. I was in an old, uh, the one remaining old vinyl, old CD, old VHS place in Orlando. There's only one left, and it will will be the last in our area. And it's a city of a couple million people where I live. And um, I saw, you know, in my millions of attachments, they had for a I think nine. Cents, a low straight jacket CD that I don't have. I mean, good grief, a low straight jackets CD that I don't have for 98 cents. But you know what? I didn't buy it, not because I was cheap, but I thought to myself, you know, you don't need to get into low straight jackets right now. You've, you've, you've done that. You don't need another enthusiasm. You know, just don't. Um, because uh, that's ambrosia, the kingdom of ambrosia, uh, which Billy Lyre goes in. What really uh, could happen is that he sees his life as he is, uh, he sees it, which is a dead end, and a complete point of suffering and he realizes that he has to get out and with a little help because we all need help everybody needs a, everybody needs someone to love you isn't that dean martin everybody everybody needs someone to love you you know uh, oh, dean martin don't you love dean martin at war with the army well you uh everybody needs uh help of some kind you can't do it yourself and that's what finley curry is the old man on the mountain tells poor billy liar and he has his chance but he also is able to say look i can't do this i'm suffering this is a this world is destroying me he even talks about it he said can you life is too hard he says life is too hard for me and he has his chance because he's with a woman who is uh, neither attached to life she goes all over the place where you been well i've been to doncaster (laughs) i'm in the udersfield you know 
she's really been around the world. Today she would have been to Kathmandu. That's why I'm going to Kathmandu. Uh, today we go to Kathmandu with Sigurd. Then it was Huddersfield, but it's the same thing. And yet she really wants to be with him. She's made her decision. She goes to find him. And it's extremely touching and truly wonderful. And uh, whatever his response, uh, he has what he needs. He has reality. She cares, and yet, in a sense, she's not totally and completely neurotically attached to him, unlike everybody else who is or isn't attached to him. Well, reality is great. Um, I'm a little bit um, putting that in the current thing. Uh, you may say, well, what about uh, soteriology and uh, culpability? And I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things we – what did uh, somebody say, some Chinese philosopher, but good Lord is in the New Testament. You do best when you uh, acknowledge your sin. You know, you do best when you humbly say, I've basically done everything wrong. I was talking to Mary the other day, and we both agreed that about 75% of our decisions professionally over the years, because we were together in our decisions professionally, quote, end of quote, although she was almost always right, not always, but frequently right when I was wrong, probably most of the time right when I was wrong. But my point is that 75% of the decisions we made were, were, were had nothing to do with culpability and morality. They had to do with, with really seeing ourselves. No, I'll speak for myself only. Seeing myself not as I was. I, I, I thought I was something I wasn't. I didn't see what I was and uh, made terrible professional decisions. Not all of them. A couple of them were great. Those of you who know me, um, some wonderful decisions, but a lot of really bad decisions based on a complete misunderstanding of what was real about me or about anybody else. And so you only see about sort of 10% of what's before you. Well, thanks for listening. That's all I have to say. And I'm going to finally finish by um, dedicating this conclusion of this podcast to my friend uh, Peter Pearson. Uh, and I want to uh, quote from one of the great groups of all time, uh, which um, basically described the way we all are when we come to terms with the uh, the uh, negative aspect of reality as something to manage because we can't do it. And we turn very uh, easily, as happens to Billy Lyre, as this happens to me, and as happened to probably everyone listening. We turn, in fact, and we need to be brought back together but in this song we turn into we are reduced to we are fractured into we are broken into bits and pieces <laughs>